theyeshiva.net. Everybody and welcome to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's weekly Moitzai Shabbos Saturday night radio show from 10 to 11 every Saturday night at the Nachum Siegel Network. I am glad to welcome all of you and I want to thank so many of you for the feedback. You can send in your questions, remarks, suggestions to RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com or you can call in. Live to our show, 845-354-2444. That's 845-354-2444. Later on in the show, we'll be addressing emails and telephone calls if and as they come in. So tonight, we're going to explore the theme of education how to educate children, how to inspire children. Of course, this is quite a grand topic and one that's been discussed and debated for probably 5,775 years, I'm sure, when Adam and Eve saw what one of their sons did to his brother, what Cain did to Abel. They looked at each other and they asked each other, where did we go wrong? And there were not too many therapists or psychiatrists or psychologists around there in the Garden of Eden to consult. So this is our discussion tonight. I'm going to make a bracha. Baruch Let me begin with a lovely observation in the Talmud and the Gemara. There's a verse in Genesis, in Parshas Vayetze. Jacob leaves his parents' home. He flees to Mesopotamia, to his uncle Laban, and he goes to sleep, and he has this famous dream. And he dreams of this ladder, Sula Shamaima, a ladder that stands on the ground, but at the top of the ladder reaches the heaven, and the angels of Hashem, the angels of God, are ascending and descending on top of this ladder. So the Talmud, the Gemara, asks in Tractate Chulin, why were the angels ascending and descending? And the Talmud answers, The angels were going up to gaze, at Yaakov's visage above, and then they were coming down to look at his visage, at his image below. And the question, of course, is, what does this mean that Jacob has two images, the image above and the image below, and the angels are going up to see the image above and the image below? But here, my friends, I believe we have a fundamental teaching and approach that can guide us, maybe for a lifetime, on how to educate and inspire our children. You see, every single human being has two images. There is your image above and your image below. What does this mean? 
You have two faces. I have two faces. You and I and all of us have two visages. What does this mean? What it means is your image above is your image the way God perceived you and perceives you. When God created you, when God conceived of your existence, what did he see in you? What are the qualities, the resources, the gifts, the talents, the treasures that he saw in you? What was the life that your creator envisioned in you? That is your image above. Who you are called on to be. Your image below is who you actually are. And the two very seldomly meet. Your image above and your image below are often very different images. You know, they tell Kissinger writes, Henry Kissinger writes about the night that um, Nixon left the White House before he resigned as a result of the Watergate scandal. And apparently he gazes at this portrait of John Kennedy, JFK, who was killed a decade earlier. And he starts speaking to Kennedy, his eternal rival, and he says, John, I want to ask you a question. Why is it that the American people love you and hate me? Because Kennedy could do no wrong and Nixon could do no right in the imagination of America. Kennedy was protected by this unique, unique perception of of glory, Hamelot, and so forth. So uh, Nixon says, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. John, when the American people look at you, they see what they would like to be. When the American people look at me, they see what they are, and they hate themselves. They don't like themselves. So you see, we all have two images. One image is your image above is who you were called on to be. What is your true potential in life? What does God see in you? What is the real calling of your soul if it was not inhibited by pain and anxiety and fear and insecurity and jealousy and animosity and inferiority complexes and all types of inclinations that bog you down and derail you from living out your full spiritual and physical and emotional potential. And your image below is actually how you live on a day-to-day basis in the real and concrete world. And the angels were gazing at Jacob's image above and image below because in his situation, in his case, the two visages actually merged into a seamless whole. They mirrored each other. They reflected each other. And the angels were astounded when they saw that. They say in the name of the Baal Shem Tov, what is the definition of Gehenim? Gehenim is translated in English as purgatory or hell. What is the real definition? I mean, there's no physical, grand, cosmic barbecue with their satayic souls. What is the real idea? And one of the lovely uh, interpretations, which I really have always appreciated of the, from the Baal Shem Tev is this. He says, you know, when a person comes up to heaven and faces his or her creator, basically for the first time, you get to see yourself. But not only the way you saw yourself in a mirror down here on earth, you get to see who you were capable of being. You get to see your visage above, not only your visage below. You get to see what is really in you, the magnitude of your soul, the depth of your personality, the greatness of your heart, how gigantic your energy, how deep it is. And then you compare it to the way you lived. And the shame, 
the shame that results from that encounter with the deepest self spells paradise for some people and hell for other people. In other words, the result of what you see for some people, it becomes the Garden of Eden, and for some people it becomes very painful. It becomes purgatory. So therefore, I would tell you, my dear friends, one of the first and fundamental aspects of educating and inspiring our children is that at every moment I have to be able to see not only the image of my children below, but the image of my children above. What this means practically is you come home, and the kids are acting up, and it's very easy to get caught up in the image of your children below. To be able to see the negative qualities, to be able to see the challenges, to be able to see the flaws, to be able to see the setbacks, to be able to see the problems. And all those are often part of reality. But the key in education is never fail to also see the image above. Look at the image below. Don't be naive. But have the ability to look at every one of your children and every one of your students and ask the question, how did God see this child when he created him or he created her? Because only if I can see the higher image of my children, of my child, in my child, will I empower my child to see himself or herself that way. If you're a teacher or an educator, a parent or a grandparent, a therapist or a friend, an uncle or an aunt, a pedagogue or a social worker, and everyone has influence on some child or the inner child within, I we have to be able to see the image above, not only the image below. When I get up in the stand up in the classroom, or I come home, or I, I, I I'm trying to educate or discipline my child, always have the courage and the ability to be able to see the image above, not only the image below. Only if you can see that image in them, will you help them see that in themselves? If you see them essentially as problem cases and people who are making your lives miserable and destroying your class and destroying your home and giving you migraine headaches and turning you into a shmata and into a chaotic, into a mess, then then we are failing ourselves. We are failing our children. Somebody once told me, a rabbi once told me, that a rabbi from Israel, that parents came to see him once about one of their children. He was like 11 or 12. And this boy had a problem of, um, he was stealing and then lying. He was really behaving inappropriately. And the parents were very hurt. The father was crying. And at some point during the meeting, the mother excused herself for a few moments, and the father remained alone with the rabbi. And he tells the rabbi, I just want to tell you, I always knew this about this boy. When he was three years old, I looked at him, and I already said then, he's a thief, he's a terrorist. So the rabbi looks at the father, and he says, if that's the case, why are you crying? I really don't understand why you're crying. You should be so happy your son lived up to your expectations. What a nachas he is for you. What I see in my child is what my child will see in himself. If you only see in your child the image below, all of the issues, all of the flaws, that's what they're going to know about themselves. But if you could look at your child and appreciate in this child their priceless gift to humanity and civilization. If you could look at this child and see the peace of God, the fragment of God in the soul of this child. If you could look at this child and ask yourself, how did the Rebbeinu Shalom imagine the presence of this person when creating them? Aha! 
Now you can begin to educate. The Balatanya famously said, Afayid dafmen, Afayid dafmen kuken v'yerstet in machshov hakdumed odom kadmen. A very Kabbalistic uh, term, but let me try to explain simply. When you gaze at another Jew, you have to be able to look at him or her the way that person is imagined in the primordial thought of God. If I do not see you in that state, then I don't see you. And if I don't see you, how can I educate you? Now, let's go to questions. You can call in with your questions, remarks, suggestions, objections to 845-354-2444, 845-354-2444, or you can email rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. That's rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. You are joining us here on the Nachum Siegel Network on the Metzoy Shabbos weekly radio show with Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson every Metzoy Shabbos every Saturday night from 10 to 11 p.m. And tonight's topic is how to inspire and educate our children. So let me address question number one, which is actually a very good question. The question is, dear Rabbi, when do I force my children to do something that they really don't want to? When is it appropriate to force them? When is it inappropriate to force them? Are there guidelines? Are there rules? What would be your suggestion? Okay, excellent, excellent question. So, obviously, needless to say, I'm addressing a rational person, a rational parent. Sometimes there's a situation where a child... A child's life is in danger, or even not in danger, but there's a very you know serious hazard or, or damage, and my child may uh, not want to uh, uh, stop playing with the knife or stop playing with the other uh, dangerous machine or cross the street when there's cars coming, and there's no question that at that moment you have to put your foot down and do whatever you need to do to protect your child, even if he or, me, or she may not be... Uh, in the position of understanding or appreciating what you're doing, just like if you have to take a splinter out of his or her finger, even though they're screaming, but you understand that if you leave the splinter, it's going to create an infection. That's quite obvious. But you're asking a general question when it comes to things that are not so straightforward. It's not the child is running into the street or playing with a knife or has a splinter in their finger. You're dealing with with education as far as values, as far as principles, as far as mitzvahs, as far as good deeds, and so on and so forth. Let me try to give a general perspective. The general perspective, I think, that is most appropriate, most appropriate, the general perspective that I think must be embraced and internalized and thought about when addressing your question, I saw not long ago in a fascinating insight by the Chsam Seifer. Chsam Seifer, for those who don't know, was one of the great rabbis of the 19th century early 19th century. His name was Rabbi Moshe Seifer, Rabbi Moshe Schreiber. He was the chief rabbi of a city known as Preshburg. Preshburg then existed in an empire that's completely absolved. It was part of the Austria-Hungarian Empire, which was one of the empires that was completely obliterated in the aftermath of the First World War, which 
took place 100 years ago. And at the end of the First World War, there was no more an Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the Chassam Seifer was in Preshburg today. Preshburg is Bratislava. And he was the rabbi of Preshburg. He was one of the very influential rabbis and sages and Jewish leaders of his time. He had a huge yeshiva. He trained a whole generation of rabbis and students. He was a prolific writer. He was a great halachic authority. And he's known till today as the Chassam Seifer, Rabbi Moshe Seifer. And I was reading a eulogy that he gave for the Kaiser, for the Kaiser of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the year Tovkov Tzadikei, which would be, let's see, that would be 18, um, um, Tovkov Tzadikei would be 1835. And he was giving a eulogy, and in that eulogy, he says something about education that's extremely powerful. And I want to share with you what he says, albeit in my own words. And my own examples. Some cipher quotes four times in Chumash where the Torah speaks about taking a person. For example, God tells Moses, Kach es Yahishua. Take Joshua and ordain him. Appoint him, designate him as the next leader who will succeed you. This is in the book of Numbers, Parshas Pinchas. God tells Moshe, Kach es Aaron. Take Aaron. You're going to appoint him as the high priest. Four times in Chumash. And Rashi, the great biblical commentator, always makes the same observation. And that is, when it says kicha, when it says take in regards to people, it doesn't mean physically. It means through words. Kaches Yeshua doesn't mean go over to Yeshua, grab him by his jacket and take him. No. Kaches Yeshua, take him means take him through your words. Influence him, explain to him, enlighten him, etc. And the Chassam Soifer asks a question, how does Rashi know this? Maybe God meant take him physically. Take Yeshua, take Aaron. You could take a person. You never go over to your child and grab them. Let Moses go over to his brother Aaron. Let Moshe come to Aaron and grab him. Take him. Take him by his arm. What's the big deal? How is Rashi certain that kicha by people means through words, not physically through their body? And the way he answers this is as follows. The Gemara says in Tractate Megillah, I think it's page 11, Yud Aleph, there were three kings who were Mashlu Bekipa. They dominated the world. They had influence over all of known civilization at the time. Three great kings. Who? <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar. First Achav, who was a Jewish king. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor in Iraq. And the third one was Ahasuerus, the Persian monarch. So the Talmud says, what about Shloima, King Solomon? He had dominance over the world. He had influence over all of the countries. And the Gemara says Solomon can't be counted in this list. Why? Because Because King Solomon ruled not only over the subjects here on the earth, but also ruled over the subjects up, the higher, the aloof, sublime, spiritual subjects. So therefore he's not counted. Now, first of all, what does that mean? He ruled over spiritual subjects. What does that mean? Second, Rashi says it means he ruled over demons, over Shadim. What does that mean? And the second second question is, why can't he be counted in the list? Just because his dominion, just because his kingship expanded, not only over earth, over heaven, so that's why he has to be excluded from the list of the three kings who mushlu bekipo, who had influence over the whole world. So the Chsam Saif, my dear friends, gives the following answer, and he says, what is a human being? A human being is comprised of two dimensions. We each have a body, a physical, literally a physical body, and we have the energy within the body. Call it a battery, call it an engine, call it a soul, but we have the electrical current. 
and the spark of life and vitality, the spiritual personality that invigorates the body, gives life to the body. It's the seat of this, it's the soul, the neshama that constitutes the inner character and vitality and life force of the body. Now, obviously, the Chsam Soifer says the body without the soul is a lifeless corpse. God forbid when somebody dies, the body is left lifeless. It's buried. It's, 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 it's a useless body. So what represents the human being when I say I'm I'm going to speak to this person, I'm friendly with this person? It's not just their body. It's their body with the soul inside the body. So the Chassam Seifer says as follows. If I take a person physically, in other words, if God tells Moshe, go take Aaron, and Moshe goes and he takes Aaron physically, did he really take Aaron? Did he really take the person? Or he took the body of the person? If I schlep you by your body, I just take you, I take you by your arm, I take you by your shirt, I, t- I pick you up and I carry you. Without words, I just do it. Through my power, I do it. Did I really take the person? Did I really take the person with me? No. in the flesh. I took the flesh of the person. I took the physical body of the person. But I take the person. If my son doesn't want to come to shul, doesn't want to go to synagogue on Shabbos, I say, you're coming. You're coming. No, I'm not coming. So what do I do? I take him. I take him by his arm and I schlep him to shul by force. So the Chesam Soifer asks a question. Did you really take your child to shul? Is your child now in shul? No. His flesh is in shul. His body is in shul. But where is his soul? Where is his personality? Where is his heart? He's not there. Why? He doesn't want to be there. He's not interested in being there. To the point, perhaps, he's actually very upset about being there. Perhaps he's even more upset. Perhaps when he's, when he's there, he's less there than if he's not there because he's so upset. He has such negative feelings towards it. So by actually taking him by his body, I didn't take him. How can I take him? Or how can I take her? Only one way, through words. I have to inspire you. I have to convince you, I have to show you, I have to teach you, I have to elevate you, I have to demonstrate. There's only one way of taking a person. If you want to take the person, if you want to take the body, you could force. You could force. But you can coerce the human being. But if you want to take the person, there's only through words. That's what Rashi is saying. So the Chamsayfa says there are two types of leaders. There are leaders that control their subjects through fear, through dread. Every person has two dimensions, the tachtoinim and the alyonim, your lower part and your higher part. Your lower part is your physical body, your higher part is your inner consciousness. There are leaders that their control over people extends only to the element of the tachtoinim, to the lowest element of the people, meaning I force, I inculcate you with fear and dread of my authority or the consequences so you have no choice but to follow me and follow my orders. Am I really leading you? Of course not. Within you, you despise me, you loathe me, you denigrate me, you hate me, you wish I was out of your life. You have no choice. You have to be under my authority. Am I really your leader? No. I lead your external, superficial, lowest part. Shloima was a type of king. He inspired the people. They chose to be his subject. They celebrated the fact that he was their melech, that he was their leader. They appreciated the fact that he was their rabbi. Ah, that's a different type of kingship. That's why he's not counted among those three who dominated the world. So, in response to your question, what I want to share with you is this. Remember that the key in education is never about forcing the person. 
It's always about speaking to the person. What you want to do is you want to inspire your children. You want to educate your children. You want it to become theirs. By me forcing my child to do something that I want, I'm not really educating my child. I'm forcing my child to follow me. Educating my child is by taking my child. How do I take my child? I can't do it by force. I have to do it through words. We have to communicate. We have to develop a conversation. I have to inspire. I have to show. I have to live. And I think this is a key component in chinuch, in education. Next question, yeah. Okay, let's take another question from the emails. Rabbi YY Radio at gmail.com. You can email your questions or you could call in 845 354 2444. The telephone lines are open 845 354 2444. Or you can email Rabbi YY Radio at gmail.com. So the question is But Rabbi, there are many values that are extremely important and extremely crucial and vital. And what if my child does not want to do them? If my child doesn't want to do it, and the only way to have him or her do it is by forcing them. So what are you suggesting? Okay, that's a very good question. Sometimes I have to tell my child, we have to do this. There's no choice. That's no, there's no question about that. Children need discipline. Children need structure. Children need order. A house or a school that is founded on the principles... Let me explain to you everything. And when you're ready to appreciate and understand what I'm saying, then we will enforce these rules. We'll become a place of anarchy and chaos. And ultimately, children don't appreciate it. Children appreciate structure. They appreciate timelines. They appreciate discipline and so on and so forth. But the point that some cipher I believe is making, in my humble opinion, is this. What is the means and what is the end? Discipline is a means for an end. It's not an end in and of itself. In other words, what I'm trying to do when I'm disciplining is not to discipline or penalize my child and demonstrate who is the boss. What I'm trying to do is I am trying to discipline my child in a way that he or she should be able to come and realize and appreciate and understand what is the best thing for this child. Let me give you an example. There is a mitzvah, actually in this week's portion, the new portion of Ayikra, that every sacrifice in the world needed salt. Every sacrifice in the world, every sacrifice that they brought to the sanctuary and the temple needed salt. There was no offering brought to God in the holy temple that wasn't salted. This includes all types of offerings, animal offerings, meal offerings. And then the Torah adds, You're not allowed to place on an offering any yeast. You can't insert yeast or honey. And the commentators say, we don't understand. Yeast or honey are not good. External, external ingredients that are not essential to the substance of the food has to be rejected. Why salt? Yes. Yeast not. Honey not. You want to put in honey. You want to make it sweeter. You want to put in yeast. Why not? We use yeast in order to inflate the dough, to make challah. What's the problem with yeast or honey? One of the commentators I once saw says a fascinating insight. There's a big distinction between salt, 
yeast and honey. Salt actually is a type of salt is a type of substance that allows the taste of the food to be accentuated, to be actualized. Yeast and honey interfere with the natural makeup of the food. Honey alters its natural taste, and yeast alters its natural chemistry, its natural makeup. Salt, of course, makes it salty, but what salt does is, those are familiar with the kitchen, salt allows the internal properties of the food to come out, to be actualized, to be accentuated. You're bringing an offering. How do I know when a sacrifice is a good thing or a sacrifice is a horrible thing? When do I know and how do I distinguish between sacrifices that are abusive and sacrifices that are ennobling? We're called on to sacrifice, to sacrifice for our families, to sacrifice for truth, to sacrifice for Yiddishkeit, to sacrifice for God, to sacrifice for other people, to sacrifice for Torah. How do I know when a sacrifice is noble and when a sacrifice is ridiculous? There are many cultures today, there are many religions today, we have cousins in different parts of the world who make tremendous sacrifices and their sacrifices are not just ridiculous, they're evil. They sacrifice their lives in order to murder infidels, to murder Jews, to murder Westerners. They want to sacrifice. They believe in sacrifice. How do I know how to distinguish between a sacrifice that ennobles the human spirit and a sacrifice that is ludicrous, ridiculous, abusive, and crushing? Tell me, how do you know the difference? So this is not a simple question, and the answer requires a lot of elaboration, but I want to bring out one point. The difference is, do you put salt? Or do you put yeast? And honey. What do I mean? Very simple. There's a sacrifice that as a result of the sacrifice, you will become more you. It's a sacrifice that allows you to express yourself in a deeper fashion. It's a sacrifice that brings you closer to your own essence, to your own truth, to your own integrity, to your own gifts. There's a sacrifice that causes you to destroy yourself, to crush yourself, to denigrate yourself, to delegitimize yourself. To become a shmata, to become nothing. We all have to make sacrifices for our family. We all have to make sacrifices for marriages. But there are two types of sacrifices. A sacrifice you make, and in the process you become a nobody. You become worthless. You become inconsequential. And you end up being a doormat. And then there are sacrifices that you make that allow you to tie down your cords so that your music can be produced. When you have a violin, you have to tie down the cords so that it produces music. There are sacrifices I have to make, things I don't do, that I want to do, or things I do. But what do they do? They allow me to challenge my ego. They allow me to challenge my instincts. They allow me to go beyond my bad habits or addictions or insecurities to be able to be the person that I could truly be. That's what a real sacrifice is. A sacrifice that has salt. Awesome. A sacrifice that is causing you to become ultimately distant from who you are. That's not a sacrifice as the Torah wants. Do I have to discipline my child? Of course. But the discipline is a means for an end to be able to show this child my objective is never to crush you, to destroy you, to turn you into a robot, to turn you into an object, to turn you into a victim of my whims or my religion or my needs or my obsessions. The discipline is here ultimately. I want you to be able to shine. 
in the way you're capable of shining. I was entrusted by God to polish your diamond so that it can glow in its full pristine light. It's not about me. It's about you. That perspective must be maintained. Let's take another question from the email. Let me read uh, the questions that are coming in there by email. Rabbi YYRadio at gmail.com. You could send in your questions or you can call in 845 You are tuned in to Rabbi YY Jacobson's weekly Saturday night live radio show 10 to 11, Mitzayi Shabbos on the Nachum Siegel Network. Tonight we're talking about educating and inspiring your children. This is an email that just came in. He identifies himself as a divorced dad. Hi, Rabbi. I am nowhere nearly as religious inside as I am on the outside. My kids are in religious Jewish schools. They are getting a religious education. I feel like I'm acting. I'm putting up a show. I'm dishonest. They must must be picking up on the fact that that I do not care for all of this. Am I to fake it? For my children, a dad. Wow, that's a good question. It's a very good question. I'll tell you how I see it. First of all, thank you for sharing it and for being candid. I just want to tell you, my dear friend, this is not the first time I received this question. I happen to get this question pretty often from people. We have a situation today of many people who, for whatever reason, on the outside, they seem very religious. On the inside, they couldn't care less about it. And yet, for the sake of their marriage, or in your case, for the sake of their children, they play along, you know. <laughs> they, 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 you know they play along. They do all the right things, quote-unquote, And um, they do it. Why do they do it? For the stability of their family, for whatever reason, fear, guilt, I don't know, whatever. uh, We're not now discussing all the reasons. And this is a question I get get extremely often, I get very often. And this is what I will tell you. Every single person struggles. Every single person is dichotomized. (laughs) The only perfect people I know are the people... I don't know. The presence of God, till Mashiach comes, is concealed in our world. And a relationship with God requires constant diligence. There are setbacks. We fall and we get up again. We fall and we get up again. So it's very difficult for me to categorize people and say this person is religious and this person is secular. This person is religious on the outside. This person is not religious on the inside. This person is religious on the inside, but secular on the outside. I think the path towards religion and spirituality is so personal. It's so multi-layered. It's so complex. It's not easy to categorize people. In some ways, I'm sure you, my friend, are more religious than many other people who scream from rooftops that they're religious on the inside and on the outside. Do you believe in visiting the sick? Do you believe in giving charity? Do you believe in being kind to people? Do you believe that every person's dignity is absolute and infinite, should be embraced? Well, if you do, you're already very religious in my book. 
There may be a person who calls themselves religious, but when it comes to interpersonal relationships, they're very abusive. Why are they called more religious than you? I'm sure you struggle with some issues, like I struggle with issues, like other people struggle with different issues. And therefore, in education, it's important to have a balance between honesty and morality. What do I mean? There's a vart, there was a yid, a great Hasidic master, he's known as the Helike Lechevitcher, Lechevitcher Rebbe. He once had a beautiful insight. The, when there's a flood, what does God tell Noyach? He says, take your wife, take your children, and go into the teva. What does the teva mean? It means the ark. But teva also means the word. Teva in Hebrew means words. Tevat are words. The message of the story of the flood is as follows. When there's a flood around you in the world, you know what you have to do? Take your wife, take your children, and enter into the teva. Enter into a dialogue with them. Have conversations with them. Don't take things for granted. There's a big flood out there in the world. If you're not going to be speaking to your children, if you're not going to be listening to your children, don't expect that the flood will not breach the walls of your own home. Enter into dialogue. Enter into conversation. Allow your children to ask questions. We're all children. Should you fake it? Should you not fake it? You're a father. Respect yourself as a father. As a father, explain to your children, I struggle with my issues. I'm your father. I'm here for you. I want to listen to you. Listen to them. And when you listen to them, you will grow through them, and they will grow through you. I do not think you should categorize yourself this way or that way. I think you should categorize yourself as a person who's growing, as a person who's working on himself, as a person who has questions, as a person who has some confusions. But obviously, you have to be a mensch. <laughs> Your children are in a, uh, in a religious environment, in a religious school. There's no need to confuse children in an extra way, in, 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 in an unnecessary way. Why should you confuse them? And, you know, there's certain conversations that are appropriate for five-year-olds. There's certain conversations that are appropriate for 10-year-olds. There's certain conversations that are appropriate for 15-year-olds, for 20-year-olds, and for 30-year-olds. When it says, take your children into a teva and enter into a dialogue with them, of course, every child, it's age-appropriate. But don't give yourself these stark categorizations. They're not necessarily always true. We're all people on journeys. Each one of us is in a different journey. Now, respect the school where your children are in. Respect the environment that your children are growing up with, their mother's home, or I'm not sure exactly the circumstances. Don't see yourself as a faker. See yourself as a father who wants the best for his children, who wants to nurture his children, who doesn't want his children should grow up in an environment filled with contradictions and being pulled in different directions. And in an appropriate way, Sheer your heart, your soul with the children. What your children need more than anything else is a father who is there for them, a father who loves them, a father who trusts them, a father who empowers them. And that's the most religious thing you can do for them. Let's take another question. Oh, my child does not fit into any of the systems. <laughs> Which child does fit into any of the systems? Okay. My child doesn't fit into the systems. Rabbi Jacobson, how do I deal with this? I don't see my child going through the whole yeshiva system. 
It doesn't seem to be made for him. And uh, I'm not sure how to deal with this issue. This is a crucial, crucial question. Very vital question. I want to thank you for, for bringing it up. And I'm going to address this. I'm going to tell you a story. For those of you who tuned in, you are listening to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's weekly radio show. We're discussing education. You can ask your questions or send in your suggestions or objections to Rabbi Y.Y. Radio at gmail.com. Or you can call in to 845-354-2444. I'm sorry, there were some emails that came in other weeks. I couldn't address all of them. Hopefully throughout the weeks we'll be able to address more. But we're doing the best we can. Let's address this question of children who don't apparently fit in to the mold, to the system, I guess, of the yeshiva world that you are accustomed to. So I'm going to tell you a story that I heard from the person who experienced it. I heard it directly from him, Dr. David Palkowitz, who's a well-known psychologist, a professor in Yeshiva University, gives today many lectures and workshops about education, about uh, about abuse, about the well-being, mental health of children. And a few weeks ago, there was a meeting of uh, many uh, mental health professionals about child abuse. I had the privilege of, of speaking there. The Amudim organization organized a meeting, a two-day, a two-day conference with workshops. It was Gavaldiga was awesome. And uh, Dr. Pelkowitz shared with me this following story. He said there was a boy of a very prominent, distinguished, religious, observant Torah family. And the siblings of this child were doing great. They succeeded in yeshiva and the girls succeeded in their Beis or their girls' schools. And they grew up and they were learning Torah and teaching Torah, married into great families, started to build families. Everything was wonderful. There was one teenage boy, I think he said he was around 15 or 16, who was really not doing well. And he was expelled from one school, went to another school, expelled again. One yeshiva to another yeshiva, to another yeshiva, you know, like a snowball here. There. It was not doing it. He completely was uninterested. He was unenthusiastic. It was just, the information was not going into him. You know, sitting at, on a, sitting at a bench or at a stender for 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day. It was just not, it was just, it was just not working for him. And his father was extremely upset, obviously, he was hurt, and he sent him to Dr. Pelkowitz. And Dr. Pelkowitz spoke to him and uh, had some sessions with him. And then told me, he said, I felt, Dr. Pelkowitz told me, he said, I felt that the whole family should come in here. And I asked the boy to invite his entire family into my office. And the entire family meant his father, his mother, all of his siblings, and also any grandparents who were alive. And one of the, and his grandparents, his father's parents attended. They were Holocaust survivors. And one of the people who came, was there in the office was the Zayda, the grandfather of the boy, his father's father who was there in the office. And uh, Dr. Pelkowitz brought up the story, he brought up the situation, and he asked the father to say what's on his mind. And the father spoke about, you know, his anguish, about the fact that this boy is not living up to his potentials and he's not succeeding in learning and uh, it's really perturbing him and bothering him and so on and so forth. At that moment, the Zayd, the grandfather, stands up and in a very emotional tone, he tells his grandson and he tells his son, let me share something. 
then he turns to his son and he says, have you not absorbed the message I have told you years ago? I cannot imagine that these are your feelings towards your son who's not doing well in yeshiva. I cannot imagine. How could have you been so foolish not to get what I told you when you yourself were a youngster? And the grandfather goes on to tell his story. He came from a large family who lived in Poland before the Second World War. All of his siblings were very successful young yeshiva boys. They were learning. They were into learning Gvaldic. Ah, he says, I was the mischievous one. I was the troublemaker. Today they would call me, you know, the ADHD, right? ADHD stands for attention deficit. Hey, donuts. I was the guy who was all over the place. I couldn't sit still. I had no zitzflesh. I wasn't interested. And I was reading the news. I saw what's going on. And I came to my father one day in Poland and I said, we have to leave. We have to run. My father said, what are you talking about? I was following the career of Adolf Hitler. Mein Kampf. People didn't believe Mein Kampf. But I knew that this is a dangerous Poland. Poland has no future for the Jewish people. And I told my father, let's leave. We got to leave. We got to run. He didn't listen to me. In fact, he attributed it to my rebellious nature and I'm not sitting and learning and I'm not doing the right thing. So I'm reading what I'm not supposed to read and I'm looking where I'm not supposed to look and I'm thinking about what I'm not supposed to think and therefore I'm just generating chaos. I want to generate chaos in the family. And I left my family. I left my father. I left all my siblings. I went on my own path. And I came to the United States of America. I'm the only person who survived from my family. Dr. Pelkowitz told me, the grandfather stood up, or he was standing. He pointed to this grandson, and he said, and he is just like me. Don't you all understand that only because of my nature, which is just like his nature, you are all here today to be able to learn. Don't you understand that this grandson replic reflects me more than anybody else? And it's because of this rebellious, uninhibited, nonconformist, very excited, very excited quality, entrepreneurial quality that we are all here today. If you cannot respect his otherness, if you cannot appreciate who he is, then you cannot appreciate the very gift of the fact that you were saved. The place was stunned. The family was stunned. Dr. Belkowitz turns to me and he says, and let me tell you the end of the story. Today, (laughs) this grandson runs the company that his grandfather started, which is a very, very successful company, and all of his brothers work for him. And of course, the point of the story is as follows. One of the most important elements in education is tune into your child's soul. Tune into your daughter's soul. Tune into your son's soul. Every soul is a chelik eleka mimal mamish. It's a piece of Hashem. It's a piece of God. It has inherent dignity, infinite value, and unbelievable gifts. And we cannot 
put everybody into the same cookie-cutter model and expect exactly the same things. Every educator, every parent, every pedagogue, every Rosh Hashiva, every Mechanach. Yes, our schools have systems and we have curriculums and we have exams and we have tests and that we have rules and that's important. But the underlying spirit of education is cherish individuality and realize that every person's soul is different and unique and don't try to make everybody look the same and be the same and act the same and speak the same and feel the same and think the same. Not supposed to be that way. Everyone expresses the glory of of Hashem in their own unique, inimitable way. That has to be cherished and that has to be celebrated. And this is not about an open-minded, morally relativist approach where everything goes and there's no morals and there's no values and do whatever you want. That's not what the point we're making. The point we're making is to the contrary. Everybody has so much depth and spirituality in their uniqueness. And as educators, we have to appreciate it. We have to celebrate it. This grandfather tends to the father and says, you're not going to celebrate your child? You're going to compare this brother to all the other brothers and therefore you're going to be upset at him for the rest of his life? Celebrate him. Enjoy him. Have fun with him. Relax with him. Have interesting conversations with him. Go out with him. You know, I want to tell you something. I was not long ago... At a uh, at a, an event, a beautiful event of eight time. You know, eight time helps couples with infertility, and they made the siyamashas. They had a, lot, a bunch of people coming, and they learned in one day. Everyone learned like ten pages of gemara. In one day, some six hundred people finished all of shas in merit of couples struggling with infertility. And uh, at night, they had a beautiful dinner. I had the privilege of speaking there. And uh, before me, my dear friend, the famous Breslov Chassid Reb Mata Frank spoke. And he, uh, and he spoke about the melody, the famous melody, Visakeni, uh, which we started off the show with. You're all familiar with this melody. It comes from words. The, the lyrics of this melody were composed by a great Kabbalist and many Jewish women recite this prayer the lyrics to this melody when they're lighting their Shabbos candles in their homes the words are stunning and extremely emotional may I merit to raise children and grandchildren the mother is pleading as she lights the candles, she turns to God. She says, may I merit to raise children and grandchildren. Wise, perceptive, intelligent, lovers of God. Children who will fear God. This is what Jewish mothers plead when they light the candles Friday before Shabbos. Raise children, men of people of truth. Holy, holy children. Connected to God. Who light up the world with Torah 
good deeds and with all of the work of serving the Creator. Again, they light up the world. I'm translating. They light up the world with Torah, with good deeds, and with all of the work of serving the Creator. So Rabbi Frank says, there are children who light up the world with Torah. There are children who light up the world with good deeds. They're great activists. They're leaders. They're Askonim. But then there are children who light up the world with all of the work of serving their Creator. And what type of work is that? Every single type of work. Everyone has their unique role, their unique mission, and we have to tell our children, go and conquer the world. The world is yours to change. Don't crush the kids. Don't repress their talents. Don't have everybody look the same and do the same thing. There's a huge world that's waiting to be changed, that's waiting to be inspired, that's waiting to be transformed. And everybody can have an impact. This one through money, and this one through their mouth, and this one through their pen, and this one through their presence, and this one through their personality, and this one through their silence, this one through one opportunity or another opportunity, one skill or another skill, one method or another method. This is how we have to look at our children. Okay, let's take a call. A call that's coming from Brooklyn. Go ahead. Hello? Yes. Yes. Go ahead, go ahead. What's your first name? Heshi. Heshi from Brooklyn. Please go ahead. Uh, Jacobson. Yes. Um, I heard your story now from this um, grandfather that was unbelievable. My ridiculous story it was like really unbelievable. Um, right now, um, I have a child that's like about 21 years old. <coughs> yeah. Whose mama, sh- a child that went to Yeshiva, the kids is like unbelievable. But he's going through a thing now. They call it with, with ADD, OCD. Okay. Yeah. He sees her. Somebody and um, takes medication, whatever. We're having a very hard time with him. Also, that he he um, mom is like doesn't want to go and sit in yeshiva anymore. He does. He goes to shul. He can learn two hours after shul, or whatever. But he just doesn't want to go to yeshiva and learn anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, I don't know. He just wants to do his own thing, and uh, we're going through a very rough time with him. What do you suggest? I suggest that. You know, maybe it's uh, it's worthwhile to uh, g- you know objectivity is very important. So sometimes people who are very close to a child and have certain expectations, it's very hard for us to be objective and actually tune in to what would be best for the child. So I think it's very good, perhaps, to have a conversation or a consultation more than just on a radio show for a few minutes with somebody who is an expert in this area, an expert in this field, and, and, and really discuss the problem. As a general, as a general uh, a rule, what I think is to try – how old is he? You said 21? Yes. Okay. So at this age, you know, a person is, is a grown-up in many ways. I think what we have to do is enter into a dialogue with this youngster 
and try to figure out something that works for him that he will be excited about and enthusiastic about. The fact that he's happy to learn two hours a day, in my mind, that's magnificent. Learning two hours a day, gewaldic, awesome. Um, the Gemara speaks in Menachis about a person who, who their obligation of learning Torah is based, they fulfill basically through saying Kriya Shema in the morning and Kriya Shema in the, mor- in the evening, learning one chapter in the morning, one chapter in the evening, which is far less than two hours. So the fact that somebody with all of these um, uh, adjectives that were used about him wants to learn two hours a day, I think is a magnificent thing. And I think for the rest of the time, we want to figure out with his input and his help and his direction, what is something, a project, a type of work, uh, a type of involvement that, that he's enthusiastic about. Remember, all of these uh, titles, whether uh, OCD, whatever the title, that, whatever the diagnosis is, I'm obviously not familiar with them. They have their flaws and they all have their blessings. <laughs> Some of uh, people in history who have had a great impact on civilization, you know, as children, they were diagnosed with all of these types of challenges and problems and therefore they thought out of the box. So therefore... I wouldn't see it as a problem. I would see it as a particular question of what's the best way to harness the talents and resources and gifts of this of this youngster. And I think it could be figured out. But the most important thing is he should not be demoralized and he shouldn't be looked at as a Rachmanis case and as a victim and as Nebach. He, you know, everyone in the family succeeded here and there. And this one, he's Takat Sadik, but there's no but. The Rabbeinu Shalolam is the one who created him the way he created him, with his gifts and with his vices, with his blessings and virtues and with his challenges. And it's not a b'diyevet, it's a l'chatchila. It's not like, oh, he can't be like everybody else. Let's find something and he'll still be a fine person. It's not he'll still be a fine person. Let's figure out and help him realize the path that Hashem made for him that he should be able to embrace with enthusiasm, with passion and with joy, that he should be able to feel good about it. That's what we have to figure out, and that, I think, is the proper approach. Sure, you have a lot of nachas. Let's go to another question. We don't have much time. We only have three minutes and a lot, a lot of questions. Um, uh, What do you think is the most important... What's the balance in the home between discipline and love? Okay, it's a great question. Great question. And what I would say is 75% of communication in the home should be positive. 25% should be uh, uh, discipline-oriented. Meaning if 75% of communication is screaming and hollering, go to bed, why are you doing this? What what do you think you're doing? This is a house, this is not a stable. And 25% of it is nurturing, then there's the ratio is off. The the atmosphere in the home must be one of, of, of... positive energy of love. Yes, 25% discipline. Discipline is important in a home. Generally, I would tell you as follows. The greatest, the most powerful method of education is when children grow up in a home that is serene, wholesome, full of joy, dancing, excitement, and happiness. Because from there they will learn not only how to make a living, but they will learn how to live. If they're growing up in a home where there's good conversation, where there's openness, where there's vulnerability, where everyone's opinion is cherished, where people can celebrate each other and give space for each other, where there is also respect for boundaries 
And casual conversation, especially on Shabbos and Yom Tif, around the table and in the family room and on the couch, there is nothing like these, those qualities that introduce into children's hearts a love for the values, for the traditions, for the, for the rituals, for the halachas, for the Torah. There's nothing. All the speeches in the world pale in comparison to the energy that we communicate through osmosis and through just living and breathing in a way that shows our children that a life of Torah and mitzvahs is not just about religion and tradition. It's a life that allows you to maximize your deepest potentials and live with, in, live with your deepest soul and suck the marrow out of your life. You have been listening to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson every Saturday night on the radio, Nachum Siegel Network, from 10 to 11 p.m. Have a wonderful night and a wonderful week, and may all of us have the courage and confidence to be able to educate with tremendous wholesomeness and tremendous joy and tremendous happiness. Thank you very much for tuning in. We'll see you next Saturday night. You can email your questions to Rabbi YYRadio at gmail.com. Aguta Vach. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.